Chapter 8 of A Confession by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Almer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. All these doubts, which I am now able to express more or less systematically, I could not have then expressed. I then only felt that however logically inevitable were my conclusions concerning the vanity of life, confirmed as they were by the greatest thinkers, there was something not right about them. Whether it was the reasoning itself or in the statement of the question, I did not know. I only felt that the conclusion was rationally convincing, but that it was insufficient. All these conclusions could not so convince me as to make me do what followed from my reasoning, that is to say, kill myself. And I should have told an untruth had I, without killing myself, said that reason had brought me to the point that I had reached. Reason worked, but something else was also working, which I can only call a consciousness of life. A force was working which compelled me to turn my attention to this and not to that, and it was this force which extricated me from my desperate situation and turned my mind in quite another direction. This force compelled me to turn my attention to the fact that I and a few hundred similar people are not the whole of mankind, and that I did not yet know the life of mankind. Looking at the narrow circle of my equals, I saw only people who had not understood the question, or who had understood it and drowned it in life's intoxication, or had understood it and ended their lives, or had understood it and yet from weakness were living out their desperate life and I saw no others, it seemed to me that the narrow circle of rich, learned, and leisured people to which I belonged formed the whole of humanity, and that those millards of others who have lived and are living were cattle of some sort, not real people. Strange, incredibly incomprehensible as it now seems to me that I could, while reasoning about life, overlook the whole life of mankind that surrounded me on all sides, that I could to such a degree blunder so absolutely as to think that my life and Solomon's and Schopenhauer's is the real, normal life, and that the life of the Millards is a circumstance undeserving of attention. Strange as this is now to me, I see that so it was. In the delusion of my pride and of intellect, it seemed to me so indubitable that I and Solomon and Schopenhauer had stated the question so truly and exactly that nothing else was possible. So indubitable did it seem that all those Millards consisted of men who had not yet arrived in an apprehension of the, all the profundity of the question, that I sought for the meaning of my life without it once occurring to me to ask, but what meaning is and has been given to their lives by all the millards of common folk who live and have lived in the world? I long lived in this state of lunacy, which, in fact, if it not in words, is particularly characteristic of us very liberal and learned people. But thanks either to the strange physical affection I have for the real laboring people, which compelled me to understand them and to see that they are not so stupid as we suppose, or thanks to the sincerity of my conviction that I could know nothing beyond the fact that the best I could do was to hang myself. At any rate, I instinctively felt that if I wished to live and understand the meaning of life, I must seek this meaning not among those who have lost it and wish to kill themselves, but among those millards of the past and the present who make life and who support the burden of their own lives and of ours also. And I considered the enormous masses of those simple, unlearned, and poor people who have lived and are living, and I saw something quite different. I saw that with rare exceptions, all those millards who have lived and are living do not fit any of my divisions that I could not class them as not understanding the question, for they themselves state it and reply to it with extraordinary clearness. Nor could I consider them Epicureans, for their life consists of more privations and sufferings than of enjoyments. Still less could I consider them as irrationally dragging on a meaningless existence, for every act of their life, as well as death, is explained by them. To kill themselves they consider the greatest evil. It appeared that all mankind had a knowledge, unacknowledged and despised by me, of the meaning of life. It appeared that reasonable knowledge does not give the meaning of life, but excludes life, while the meaning attributed to life by millards of people, by all humanity, rests on some despised pseudo-knowledge. 
Rational knowledge, presented by the learned and wise, denies the meaning of life, but the enormous masses of men, the whole of mankind, receive that meaning in irrational knowledge. And that irrational knowledge is faith, that very thing which I cannot but reject. It is God, one in three, the creation in six days, the devils and angels, and all the rest that I cannot accept as long as I retain my reason. My position was terrible. I knew that I could find nothing among the path of reasonable knowledge except the denial of life, and there, in faith, was nothing but a denial of reason, which was yet more impossible for me than a denial of life. From rational knowledge it appeared that life is an evil. People know this, and it is in their power to end life, yet they lived and still live. And I myself live, though I have long known that life is senseless and an evil. By faith it appears that in order to understand the meaning of life I must renounce my reason, the very thing for which alone a meaning is required. End of chapter 8